Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, was there a winner in last night's federal leaders debate? A 14-year-old is dead after a stabbing at Sir Winston Churchill Secondary School in Hamilton's East End. What's the latest and what's being done about safety of the school? And the British government has come forward and said that the chances of a Brexit deal are fading fast. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The big story is uh, the English language debate from last night. Uh, as all of the leaders, including the Bloc and, and Maxime Bernier from the People's Party of Canada, were all on the stage. And as you might expect, with a crowded stage like that, well, uh, things got a little out of hand more than once. And sometimes it was uh, dramatic. Sometimes it was, well, undiscernible. There's no Canadian that believes that they're going to be better off by paying a carbon tax. You have given a massive exemption to the country's largest polluters, and your plan is already The economists, the the parliamentary budget officer points out 80% of Canadians are better off under our Nobody believes your numbers, Justin, because you have misled Canadians. I want to say this directly to Canadians. You do not need to choose between Mr. Delay and Mr. Deny. There is another option. One of the more light moments, I suppose, from uh, Jagmeet Singh. But uh, obviously talking over each other an awful lot of the time. For Canadians who tuned in last night, and I think many did, uh, with the uh, I stated purpose of, look, at, I'm not sure where I'm going to go on this. I want to see how these people perform. I'm not sure that they're any further ahead this morning. i got a lot of different people I want to talk to about this, uh, and we're going to uh, get a range of opinions and a range of feedback on this. And I'm also, uh, before we finish off the segment here this hour, I want to give you an opportunity to weigh in on this. Uh, if you watched the debate last night, uh, your impressions, and did it do anything towards moving you towards one candidate or the other, uh, which I guess is really the stated purpose of these things. I know that there are some people, a lot of people probably, who watched the the proceedings last night from Gat. Uh, got no who's already made up their mind and, and I guess what they're looking for is is reinforcement of, of the people that uh, that they're hoping to see and hoping to vote for and hoping to actually see win this election uh, easier said than done obviously because uh, even the nanos polling that has come out which of course is done on a daily basis uh, looks as if it's still a dead heat uh, the polling that uh, the nanos folks today released uh, has the conservatives and the liberals both at 35 percent. And the uh, the NDP down around seventeen percent, and uh, subsequent other parties like that. Now, uh, we should also mention that uh, Nanos was quite uh, clear that those polling numbers were actually accumulated uh, the day of and not after the debate. And uh, so that's going to be interesting to see just what rolls out over the uh, the next little while about how this is going to work out. John, I'm sorry for the holdup. Uh, John Delacourt is with us now from Hill and Knowlton Strategies. Uh, thanks for joining us today on a, on a busy day after, I guess. Uh, <laughs> no problem at all. Uh, we're going through the entrails of this thing right now, John, to figure out who won, who lost. With that many people on the stage and so many different, I, I, I guess, goals by almost each and every one of these guys, very difficult to find winners and losers in this thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and, and full disclosure here, um, my uh, sister was one of the, our moderators last night, so um, as you can imagine, uh, watching her brave uh, the challenges of this particular format uh, was uh, was also uh, ab- absorbing and less than entertaining for me. John, did, did you have a chance to, have you had a chance to talk to Susan since then? <laughs> uh, no, uh, just a, uh, apart from, uh, you know, via uh, yeah. email, but that's, that, that's pretty much it. Moder- um, moderating I, something like that is akin to herding cats, isn't it? 
<laughs> it really is. And, you know, and, and given the high expectations of these uh, official commission debates, I think most Canadians are probably no more informed or assured of their choice uh, for who will lead this government coming out of this. Uh, it just, it was not, unfortunately, a format that provided Canadians with much of an opportunity to see issues discussed substantively. And, and it's it's this challenge of the six-way crosstalk, perhaps. Um, and I think more than that, um, the moderators seem just as tentative with the unfolding narrative as, as those behind the podiums. Uh, some discussion of policy did occur, but there were some real challenges in getting anything more than 30 seconds out there of... of Sorry, I was going to ask you, what about that time? Let's let's talk a little bit about that. About the the stri- the, the the format for this thing is more than once. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth May complained about that and said, "I don't have enough time, or I'm not being given enough time to articulate what yeah. she wants to do." I'm sure that was a frustration that was shared by all of them. Oh, most definitely. Especially, I mean, you uh, played right off the top a clip of both Sheer and Trudeau, yeah, uh, essentially uh, discussing what in many respects, seems to be their main lines of attack. But but um, I think most Canadians uh, listening there immediately lost the thread because uh, they were so, they were so uh, they were compelled to get out as much as they could within thirty seconds before the moderator would come in and 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 effectively marshal them to the next point. Um, and and I think there are real real areas or notable omissions that occur um, when you do not uh, get a chance to have that more substantive debate. Um, very little on health care was discussed last night. Yeah. Very little on the in- innovation economy, very little on the foreign, pol- on foreign policy beyond just headline rhetoric. Um, and there are real opportunities there, I think, for Canadians to see where there are clear lines of division between the parties. Um, and, and really, I think what they saw was, in many respects, what they already know in terms of the environmental platforms of the various uh, uh, parties. And what, and I think the suspicions were confirmed about, say, uh, Bernier's uh, People's Party. Um, all of this, I think, um, puts only in relief the strategic advantage for the bloc in participating in this. Um, if I were to say, if there was, there was, you could, I think you could speculate on who was the rhetorical winner of the evening, but I think the strategic winner of the evening was actually uh, Yves-Francois Blanchet, mainly because all he had to do was stay in his lane, um, articulate the concerns of Quebecers, and, and, and essentially not be crazy. <laughs> and and he will continue to gain momentum in Quebec. And so for all of, I think, the, the strong performance and strong rhetorical flourishes of, of Jagmeet Singh, he's really capped by that uh, in, in terms of his growth in, one, in, in really where, where he's got some, some opportunity to grow, unfortunately. Um, and so because of that, uh, again, I, I think, Oddly enough, I think we're in a position now where, with one debate left, the French debate may act, may actually uh, provide greater clarity into where the strategic advantages um, play out uh, in the in the last couple of weeks. Is, is in a strategy like this, with this many p- participants in this, John, is is the is this the number one goal here not to lose? I mean, forget about winning because I don't know yeah. if you say, but just let don't make an idiot of yourself. Don't say something. No, no big gaffes. <laughs> 
Yeah, um, and I think that's that's exactly what you saw with uh, with the prime minister. It was um, it, it he he was he was polished. Uh, you could tell that um, um, years of town hall town halls across the country have have given him a certain amount of rhetorical assurance. Um, and, and I think uh, Andrew Shear, to his credit too, um, managed to put the gloves on a little bit and and come out in a little bit more combative. Um, his opening salvo with uh, with Trudeau, I think, suggested uh, uh, the the kind of uh, tone that we're going to see in the last couple of weeks uh, from the Conservatives, um, because this race is so tight between the Conservatives and the Liberals. Um, it, it it will unfortunately be. Uh, more negative than positive uh, in these last couple of weeks from both parties. Well, that's the new normal now, though, isn't it, really? It really is. Um, And I think, you know, there are a number of factors that play into that. Um, Ultimately, um, the polarization, I think, uh, 10 minutes on Twitter can tell you how how polarized this dialogue uh, has has become. I think... um, Ten minutes on Twitter, if you were a conservative voter, um, would tell you that uh, Andrew Scheer won last night. And, t- <laughs> and ten minutes, uh, c- yeah, conversely, uh, would uh, as a liberal voter would tell you the same thing about Trudeau. So, I mean, we, we're in a, this situation where when, when there is no real substantive debate that occurs in a, in a debate of this format, um, we're left with, at best, uh, a, a sort of a neutralizing effect. And to your point, then, um, the real strategy here is to get out of it and get out of it um, with, with uh, at a, at a, if anything, um, without losing anything. And, and therein lies the, the, I guess, the greater question right now is just how is this going to resonate with voters? And I guess we're at least a couple of days away from finding out how that's going to roll out. John, thank you so much yeah. for the time today. Always great to get your perspective on this. Thank you very much. John Delacourt, of course, Vice President, Public Affairs with uh, Hill and Knowlton Strategies. I want to bring David Moscrop into the conversation, a postdoctoral fellow at Simon Fraser University. He's a political theorist and, of course, the author of When is Deliberation Democratic? Uh, David, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us this morning. Oh, my pleasure. Nice to be here. We were just talking with uh, John Delacourt about this and the approach that uh, that all of the participants make in, in debates such as this, with this many people on here. Uh, not a whole lot of substance, and uh, do you just walk into one of these things quick, with, equipped with a whole bunch of one-liners and hope to get the odd zinger in that's going to be the soundbite for the next day or two? Well, I suspect you walk in with the intention of deploying a couple of, of zingers, and you could tell that there were a few canned moments. Yeah. Mr. DeLay versus Mr. Deny, or, you know, Andrew Shear saying out, or Max and Bernie saying out loud what Andrew Shear is thinking privately. I mean, they're great lines, and that's the thing that gets picked up by the media. Uh, so that's, that's the strategy. But, of course, you have to know your platform. You have to know your opponent's platform. And, and one of the things that irritates me about these debates is we walk away thinking that no one on stage really knows what they're talking about. The fact is they do. Of course they know their platforms. They know their opponents' platforms. But the, the format begs for the zingers. And, and there, I, that's what something that troubled me. And I know that the, I, I'd like to get the feedback from the leaders themselves about this. As I was just mentioning to John, uh, Elizabeth May was vocal about her, her concerns about the way this thing was actually rolling out last night. And I got to sh- figure that the others were as well. There's, there's a lot they want to say and not a whole lot of time to get it done. And I know for the sake of brevity and to try to fit everything in, uh, the consortium that put this whole thing together says, well, that's a, just about enough time to make uh, a proper answer. But if you're trying to win the hearts and minds of voters, is that really enough time? 
Well, it depends. If you're trying to sloganeer them into voting for you or to scare them into not voting for your opponent, it's plenty of time. You can do a lot of damage in 45 seconds. But if it's about convincing them that your ideas are better or that your policies are better, that's not nearly enough time, right? I mean, so it, it, it isn't. And again, we've got you know 45 seconds to try to, for one, uh, challenge your opponent's position and then state your own. It's, ne- it's never going to be enough. Now, of course, you know, if there had been a proper debate format, I think Elizabeth May would have won that night walking away. She's very, very good at that. But I suspect there's a couple leaders on that stage that didn't mind 45-second sound bites. <laughs> it serves them very well. <laughs> uh, I, I suspect Justin Trudeau, for instance, is one of them, and probably Andrew Scheer, too. Well, and, it, and it's a far cry from the way I remember the first couple of debates when Steve Pakin was I'm seeing them a few years ago. And, you know, okay, we're going to talk about the economy. And you could literally see the leaders turning to that page in their binder. Okay, here are my talking mm-hmm. notes on the economy. And, and that's not insightful, and that's not helpful for the voters either. I, I don't know how we can settle on something that's, that's going to be a winner for the, the people that want to watch this and actually uh, be informed about what they think. I thought we touched a lot of bases last night that uh, as I was watching it said, well, we already know this. We already know this. You know, what about this? You know, they didn't really touch, a, I, I think, a whole lot of issues that people are still concerned about. Yeah, I mean, there are better ways to do this. The problem is you have to satisfy viewers. You have to satisfy the parties and the leaders. You have to satisfy a handful of time zones. And you have to satisfy the broadcast networks. So you've got to try to, this is the camel that comes out of that attempt to design a horse bike committee, Right. So that's that's the fundamental challenge that we deal with. That said, we could have five, six debates each on a separate issue, right? Then you wouldn't have forty-five, you know, a total of ten minutes on the economy or ten minutes on indigenous politics. You could have an hour, but you know, and people say that they care about debates, and parties say they love debates, even though obviously sometimes they don't. Uh, if we really cared, we could have half a dozen debates on on half a dozen issues and, and get into the substance. But instead, we get this. David, with what we did see last night, uh, you know the rhetoric, the zingers, uh, a little bit of topic or discussion rather about substance, although that seemed to get drowned out by somebody else who just decided to jump over top of it. It was very difficult to try mm-hmm. to follow the stuff there. Did did anybody walk away from this thing uh, better informed? And, and do you think there was anything last night that helped people make up their mind about which way which way they were going to vote on the twenty first? Yeah, it's funny. Is there's always no matter how good or bad a debate is, you know, there's always going to be a section of people who don't change their mind and a section of people who do. And depending on whether or not a party won, um, or a party would, sorry, whether or not a party won is dependent on what their goals were, right? So just by being on the stage, for instance, Maxime Bernier had won, right? He was able to uh, remind people that he exists, mobilize, uh, you know, do a little bit of, of agenda setting. So for instance, I'm sure he picked up a couple of votes yesterday. Uh, you know, if you're Justin Trudeau, this is such a cliche, but it's true. You're looking to get out of there without being pummeled. You're the incumbent. You know, you're always going to be the target. And he did a fairly good job at that. But if I had to say, okay, who, who came away probably most persuasive? I, I suspect it was Jogit Singh. Uh, I, you know, I do think that he was better able to communicate his message. That was why he kept hearing, we're the little, we're fighting for you against the big guy. And he got, he came off as the most human, decent, smart, but uh, you know, normal. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> hard to do on a debate stage. I mean, we, we we underestimate sometimes the degree to which that matters for people. I suspect in terms of persuading people, um, as much as a PR argument uh, exercise that might have been, that thing was the best. 
David, we'll see how this rolls out over the next couple of days and uh, get people's perceptions. Uh, try to get off Twitter for a little bit and just see what public opinion polls say on this. Uh, That's always, always good advice. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first part especially, get off Twitter for yeah, a while. exactly. David, always a pleasure. Thanks for this today. Pleasure's all mine. Take, Take care. care. David Moskop, of course, uh, uh, from uh, Simon Fraser University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to uh, get into uh, this uh, terrible, tragic situation that occurred yesterday in the east end of the city at St. Winston Churchill High School in the east end. Uh, a 14-year-old is dead after a stabbing around St. Uh, Winston Churchill Secondary School. Uh, there have been arrests made. There's an ongoing investigation into this right now, and uh, uh, police have made some public statements on this, but uh, clearly there's a, a lot of work yet to be done. But uh, the more immediate concern, I suppose, is the impact this is having on the community and certainly within that school community as well. Uh, I don't know that you can ever foresee something like this happening, but uh, do you put a plan in place? Is there a strategy that has to be followed here for, for people to deal with this and to come to grips with what they saw in some cases? Uh, Manny Figueroa is the Director of Education of the Hamilton uh, Wentworth District School Board, uh, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to address some of those issues. Manny, thank you for the time on, a, I know, a very troubling and a very busy day for you and, and your boards. Uh, Bill, thank you for having me. I wish I was on, uh, on your program for a different reason. Uh, as I say, I don't want to go too deeply into the investigative part of this, because that's not really the, what, what you guys are all about. That's for Hamilton Police Services to handle. But let's let's talk about a couple of different things here that have come to mind. And and when I mentioned that you're going to be on the program today, I started to get a number of tweets. People say, well, what about this? What about this? Uh, first and foremost, obviously, let's talk about the here and now uh, and how you handle the, the, the students, the teachers, the families that are involved in this. Uh, it's certainly not business as usual today. We know the school is open, of course. But uh, many people that are there are they're there with heavy hearts and an awful lot on their minds. How do you how do you handle that? How do you try to reach out to them? Well, uh, Bill, thank you for acknowledging that our school is open. I think that's the first uh, step in the plan is to ensure that our school is open and that um, students and staff have a place to come. And and today we I, I'm calling you actually from the school. I've been here since this morning, and so has a, a large uh, number of, of my team. But right now we have a crisis response intervention team here, social workers, uh, guidance counselors. We also have um, supports for our staff from our human resource t- uh, division to provide wellness counseling. So it, it's all hands on deck right now. Or, or, and some parents have made the choice, I, uh, and we respect that if some of them have kept their uh, students and children at home, but a large number of our students are, are present here today. Talk to us about the strategy that's employed. Obviously, you're doing this with the school administration. Uh, is, there, is there a template, Manny, that you simply fit in and say, okay, here's what we're going to do, here's who we're going to bring? Well, we do have a, a template we use, but every situation is, is unique. Anytime we have uh, we experience any kind of loss, we do have a crisis response intervention team. They, uh, they were out here yesterday led by our, our social work. We also know our administration is also dealing with their own emotions and staff. So we brought in some extra staff here today, uh, occasional teachers. We have some retired experienced administrators who are here as well to provide support because the support comes in a a variety of ways. We have people who want to speak one-to-one individually. We have people who want to speak in groups to to speak about, uh, you know, how they're feeling and trying to make sense of of this act of violence. And... um, then there are situations where whole class discussions might emerge where a teacher feels that it's important that a lot of students have questions and then someone is available as well. 
is it difficult, and sadly we've had other situations, as you say, everyone is different, Manny, uh, but is it difficult to get people to open up? I mean, an awful lot of the time, the, especially when it comes to some of the students, and I would think even some of the adults that were involved in this, uh, and, and to, to actually, they don't know what to say or to whom, uh, and, and it's, it's still there. It's still eating away at them, but, but they're, they're looking for help but maybe don't know how to reach out. Yeah, no, I, th- I think it's important. I, I, I've been at the school walking around speaking to some students, and I spoke to a group of parents at the back of the school. And, I mean, the common theme I, I, I've been messaging is that we need to talk. And I know there's a range of feelings on social media from, you know, could the school have done something more to, you know, we love our school, we can't believe this this happened. And what I continue to say to people is the school doesn't live in isolation of the community. Um, and we're, we're a part of the community, and what, how we respond once we learn more in terms of specifically what happened here, I hate to speculate, um, there's a lot of speculation happening, but what can we learn from this? And what will be important is that we need to continue to, to listen to our students um, and the range of emotions they're experiencing and how we respond. And we need to engage our parents too, because our parents and our students are, live in the community outside of the school hours. So um, we, we see uh, this as an opportunity, but right now we have to be so sensitive of, of what this family, uh, this mother is going through, uh, absolute nightmare, and, and uh, we need to be there to, to support and honor her wishes as we go through this journey. This was a student from the school, was it not? Yeah, it was a 14-year-old year, 14 uh, male uh, from Sir Winston Churchill School. I've seen some of the comments on social media, and I'm sure you have over the last uh, 24 hours or so, uh, Manny. Uh, and the the insinuation from an awful lot of the people that have posted right now is that there was some uh, bullying was a factor in this. Uh, do you have any evidence to substantiate that? Yeah, I, so I hate to, again, speculate. The student's been here five to six, to six weeks. But what I have been saying, uh, Bill, about uh, bullying, whether it was a case, uh, whether bullying was part of this incident or not, um, the question asked to me of other media today is, you know, does bullying exist in, in, in this school? I know the administration here works tirelessly to build a positive culture and create a positive image for the school. However, uh, bullying happens in our bullying does happen in our society, and our schools are a reflection of our society. Um, the, we know what the research says that, that the most important strategy, most effective strategy, is how do we help bystanders intervene? Because most acts of bullying occur, whether it's in the physical world or, I say, in the digital world, is where there's less adult supervision. So we are always struggling, and from a parent perspective, I'll speak as a parent when I say to my children, you need to step in and not allow someone to be bullied. But again, I also want you to be safe. Don't, don't get involved if, if, if you're going to be in jeopardy. So we have to continue to work with our students around um, positive and safe ways for bystanders to intervene earlier, and that's where we encourage our students. I know it's difficult to reach out to adults earlier um, so we can provide support. Manny, I think there's a very cogent point here that you just touched on, and I'd like you to expand on that if you could. As you mentioned, we are only a couple of weeks into the new school year here. Uh, No matter what grade this was or or for the students of the school, there are going to be new students. People come and go depending on where they move and things of this nature. What's the, what's the policy, whether it's a school policy or, or a board-wide policy, about uh, about 
having getting that word out there and and and, and some sort of orientation uh, that I would think that you know bullying anti-bullying tactics and, and anti-bullying strategies have to be part of that uh, as as the students are getting used to the a new environment and maybe new classmates and things of this nature. How how do you reach out to them? Is it done through assemblies? Is it done through seminar workshops? I mean, is or is just a, something that's handed out and here read this and and and. If you have any questions, call it. What, how, how do you approach something like that? Yeah, we do it in a variety of ways. Um, one way we do it is, and this school has been working really hard, especially around grade 9 orientation, when new students are coming in in a collective mass. Remember, they're coming from a variety of elementary schools. Um, so we do a lot of, of uh, orientation uh, in the spring, grade 9 welcome days, and, and we really try to help students build positive uh, relationships. One of the board-wide strategies uh, under our safe schools is to really look at uh, what we call sort of um, the caring adult. Every student needs to have someone they can connect to and trust. And because when students feel they have someone they can turn to, um, uh, that they can trust, they're likely going to do that earlier than later. And and we talk about um, that as, as a strategy. And when we do have incidents where there is um, a bullying or there's been some kind of a breakdown relationship we talk about those restorative justice practices but to do that you need two willing parties because when relationships are fractured how do you build them and uh, and have people feel safe again one of the ways is to sort of restore that uh, that justice uh, and again, I, I don't want to go too deeply into the police investigation. We'll obviously hear from them uh, in the passage of time as they continue their investigation. We know there have been some arrests made. Uh, we were also told that there is video evidence, uh, perhaps even video evidence of the incident itself. Uh, talk to us about the security systems that are in place in and around the school there. So uh, we've been cooperating with the police, and we do have video surveillance cameras. Uh, that can confirm that the, the videos that the police have obtained have not been from the school because of where the incident occurred was sort of adjacent sort of um, to the to the school property on the sidewalks so or our videos don't didn't capture that uh, that far um, but um, so we do have them in in our high schools and um, so that's you know that's one key strategy but I think the most important strategy no matter how many videos or cameras you have in in school the relationship piece with the adults is, is the number one way to have people feel safe so there, there are systems in place there, uh, and, and as you mentioned, the video aspect of this uh, is is one element of that. Uh, the other element, of course, that I know some people have raised some concerns about again, Manny, and maybe get to get your comment on this is 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 the physical elements of of, of safety and and uh, you know monitoring and things of this nature. Like you say, this happened technically, I guess, off the school property, but within sight of the school, uh, etc. And I, we don't even know yet whether or not it started on the school property or not. That's uh, yet to be determined, and we'll get that information. But but what systems do you have in place to to monitor what's going on on the school property besides the video element? Yeah, so we you know so in the school property we do have of course during nutrition breaks we have sort of we have our educators doing supervision in hallways in the cafeterias and you know the larger the school properties and secondary um, you know students have lunch breaks at different times they have spares which they do venture off school property to go out for lunch and whatnot and you know we don't have adults across the entire school property you know supervising the yard like we would see in elementary school because the the, the day is structured differently so you know that's where we always say that um, 
we don't live in isolation in the community, so that, you know um, we need to find solutions with the community because uh, we would never have enough people to say we w- we could supervise the yards in our secondary schools. Manny, have you had problems at the school before? Oh, I mean, to this to this nature, uh, no, uh, we we haven't. I know um, in the past, and I can't recall before I was director. Uh, you know, we uh, we did have a tragic loss of a student. Um, um, death by suicide that uh, the community is aware of that was, I, I hate to be misquoted that was probably about 7 or 8, eight years ago and uh, we've responded to that but we've come, you know getting society and, and the board and society have come a long way in terms of mental health strategies and having people open up around mental health issues and, and st- stigma and death by suicide I guess maybe a question that, uh, that I'm sure you've had discussions with about the school administration at Churchill right now uh, was there a bullying? Is there a bullying problem there that uh, that administrators were aware of and and, and trying to deal with? Or, and and I, I, I your point's well taken from earlier in our conversation. It exists in the outside community. It exists sometimes, uh, sadly, in the school community as well. Uh, but some places are better or worse than than others. How, how would you rate Churchill? The school administration here has done an outstanding job. As you know, the the board has also invested resources in this in the school to, to build pride. And one of the ways you build pride in the school is you, 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 you invest in the facility. You can say that we've invested in this, this facility at Artificial Field, so kids feeling value that we, we, you know, uh, we're going to invest in your school because we, we believe in you and you deserve a great learning environment. Our administration team has done a great job. In terms of specifics around this student incident, I don't have enough knowledge of that. All I know is that we're cooperating with the police because that's part of their investigation at this time. But I know uh, this school has done a great job in what they call building uh, the. Their mission is around building a strong bulldog family, and they they believe any they believe that each student is part of of the Sermons and Churchill bulldog family, and that's the culture they're trying to build here. When we talk about anti-bullying strategies, Manny, and you've talked about this numerous times on the show over the years, uh, we we know that there are some things that have been put in place, uh, safe rooms, et cetera, within the school, uh, strategies about this sort of thing, awareness, which is a key element to this whole thing. But is there a crisis point, a crisis uh, strategy, that if somebody feels as if they're being threatened, uh, that there's a, somebody they can go to immediately to try to, to find some, some safe harbor? Yeah, we, yes. And, and you know, we... So we work very closely with our our, our police um, uh, liaison officer that's connected to all our high schools. So we have our student success teachers, our guidance counselors there, and all educators, though, you know, have a duty to uh, respond when a child reports that that they're feeling unsafe for whatever for whatever reason, and, and to, to put a plan in place. So there are key staff in our secondary schools, in our guidance departments, that you know that's what they're here for. And, and the students are aware of that, that this is the person, that's the go-to person right there. Yeah, and so it's more than one person because uh, depending sure. on the size of the high school, they know that who they're assigned to in terms of their guidance counselor. But I have to also say our principals and vice principals make themselves very accessible because sometimes our kids will open up uh, to the guidance counselor. Sometimes they'll open up to administration. Sometimes they'll open up to the one teacher or their coach that they feel very, very close about. But we also have what we call... Uh, uh, leads in every school around supporting students with, with mental health as part of our, our mental health strategy, because depending on what issue services, and then we have supports from our board office who, who will be deployed here um, through our social work department, depending on, on the need and if there's any kind of clinical support required. Well, it's an understatement to suggest that the community, not just the school community, but I think the greater Hamilton community was shocked by the news yesterday 
Uh, you're still on site, of course, and the police are continuing their investigation, so there's much more to be learned from this in the days ahead. But uh, for anybody who has any concerns about this, uh, obviously just to get in touch with a guidance counselor or somebody within the school to, and reach out to them, and, and obviously that's when your process can be put in place. You know, that, that's correct, Bill. And uh, right now we're going day by day, and, uh, you know, again, we're shocked and we're um, – could only imagine what the, the family, the immediate family of the victim and the mother is dealing at this point in time. Exactly. Uh, Manny, thanks as always for this. We'll stay in touch as this uh, unfurls over the next couple of days. Okay, thank you, Bill. Manny Figuardo, of course, who is the Director of Education over the Hamilton Board of Education. He is on site at uh, Winston Churchill today where that terrible tragedy occurred yesterday. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson had a meeting with Angela Merkel about uh, Brexit, uh, and it did not go well for the uh, the Prime Minister. Uh, the British government has come forward saying that the chances of a Brexit deal now are fading fast, uh, and that's going to have some implications, uh, Just not just with the UK and, and the EU, but obviously in, in other trading uh, corridors as well. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Mel Kapp, who is a professor at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy and a senior fellow at Massey College at the University of Toronto. Uh, Professor, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good to be here, Bill. Uh, I want to talk to you about, about Boris Johnson's attitude toward this, and, and obviously uh, the, the attitude that he took into the meeting right now. The, obviously the message he's bringing back uh, when he goes back to his own caucus and I guess to the parliament is these guys aren't playing ball, and that's exactly the same message that Angela Merkel and other members of the EU are talking about, are, are, are claiming Johnson is doing right now. Uh, who's right and who's wrong here? Um, uh, let's recognize that Boris is about uh, one thing and has one objective, and that is Boris, uh, advancing Boris's interest. He's uh, very self-centered in all of this. Uh, and what's happening now is that there's a bit of a blame game going on and uh, finger-pointing. Uh, Boris doesn't want to wear the uh, failure of uh, Brexit and uh, is looking to blame the EU. Uh, but the the ammunition he's using, I guess, in a situation like this, Mel, is, is well, it's it's head scratching to be honest about it. Uh, he's <laughs> suggesting that after the meeting here, he's saying that look at uh, this. This is the official statement from Downing Street says that uh, uh, Ms. Merkel's position and the EU position right now represents a new established position, and they're basically talking about uh, the the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, and suggesting that that's uh, to stay open. That's not new, isn't it? It's variations on the same thing they've been asking for ever since this whole thing started. Absolutely. So what, uh, think about this. It, this isn't new at all. In fact, it was Emmanuel Macron on Friday who said, uh, actually, it looks like the deal's cratering. We can't bother to even meet over the weekend. Johnson wanted his principal negotiator, David Frost, to meet with Michel Barnier, the European Union negotiator. And uh, Macron said there's no point. And so the, the meetings didn't actually take off until um, yesterday, on Monday. And then you had um, Boris trying to have meetings in European capitals. The reason that he had a phone call with Angela Merkel was that she wouldn't meet with him, and neither would Macron. So none of this is new because it's all about whether you draw the border at nor the six counties of Northern Ireland or do you draw the border in the Irish Sea. Both of them have very severe consequences, and this is a problem that Boris has not been able to solve. Uh, and again, 
how much of this is is because of the well I was going to say the deal I guess the proposed deal that Theresa May had been going back and forth with uh, trying to get her parliament to to agree to and Boris Johnson's perception or Boris Johnson's reality I guess of what was going on because it all seems to hinge on this and and I know that it, it, as I've been following this story over the last number of months anyway Mel uh, the UK has always been committed whether it's going to be a Brexit deal or not uh, to a frictionless border between Northern Ireland and 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 of course Ireland itself Johnson seems to think is that this is a new revelation at least that's what he's characterizing it as well, no, his, uh, the Theresa May solution, remember, had this notion of a backstop, which was that, you know, until we figure it out, we'll allow for Northern Ireland and Ireland to re- remain open, yeah. to have the border open. Um, and so Theresa May couldn't solve the problem, so she grappled with it and said, well, we'll have the backstop and we'll figure it out later. Boris Johnson has said, okay, I figured it out. Um, it just doesn't work. <laughs> and so... Uh, Boris is is basically saying, um, I've got a better solution than Theresa May had, except it doesn't work. And that's where the Europeans are saying, well, that's not a solution. We can't have Ireland uh, in the European Union and Northern Ireland out of the European Union uh, and have a frictionless border at the same time. Uh, European Council President Donald Tusk has weighed in on this, as we figured he would. Uh, and uh, your, to your point, Mel, he's uh, he's tweeting yesterday that uh, what's at stake here is not winning some stupid blame game. It's actually to to try uh, the future of Europe and the UK as well as the security and interest of people in both uh, organizations right now. Uh, it, 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 they don't want a deal. I mean, I, I guess I get the sense from reading the, some of the tweets here, Mel, that Mr. Tusk is getting very frustrated with uh, with Boris at this stage, uh, saying, you know, you, you don't want an extension, you don't want a deal, you don't want to revoke this. What is it that you're doing here? Uh, well, I think that Tusk became frustrated a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, and yes, you're right. Uh, I think the the real challenge here is how do you make progress in untying this Gordian knot? You've got this problem of um, the the Northern Ireland part of the the United Kingdom of Great Britain in Northern Ireland, or do you have Ireland as part of the European Union? The EU27 are insisting that any deal keeps Ireland in the Union, and the Northern Irish are saying, and the DUP is saying, uh, insisting that any deal keeps Northern Ireland in the United Kingdom, a different union. And, uh, you, you know, and at the same time, that there are no formalities at the border. Uh, this is um, you know, too many conditions for the one instrument that you have, which is constructing a border. How's this playing uh, in Whitehall, down the street uh, from from the Commons right now? Well, obviously, uh, Boris would like everybody there to believe that he's on the right side of the angels here uh, and that the EU is being inflexible about this. And, and, of course, on the other side, the EU is simply saying, our our position hasn't changed at all. I mean, those were the conditions when you guys, uh, right from the day you guys announced the referendum results, this is the way it was going to be. Absolutely. And so uh, Boris has a huge problem in Westminster. Uh, Whitehall is usually referred to as the, uh, uh, the public service, and he's got a huge problem with them. But his uh, capacity to hold Parliament together is very challenged at the moment. So Parliament actually prorogued today, and, um, and this is a legal prorogation, unlike the last one. And uh, we'll be reconvening on Monday, so it's a six-day prorogation. And the Queen's speech will be uh, offered with a new agenda for Boris's government. 
Um, the Queen's speech requires a vote of confidence. And sometime in the course of the next couple of weeks, we shall see whether he has his parliamentary Westminster colleagues on side or not. And I think it's uh, going to be a very, very close uh, element of this, and the government could fall, and it could fall prior to the uh, October 31st deadline. So we've got a, a degree of chaos here that is quite significant. And, and well, let's count the heads here. I mean, uh, he does not have a majority anymore, obviously. I mean, the, that one-member right. majority left, uh, and even his brother, of course, has abandoned the party at this stage. Uh, and mm-hmm. then, then, of course, there was the excommunication of another of other uh, members of the of the Conservative Party that uh, that weren't playing ball with Johnson. Uh, mm-hmm. He's doomed to fail, isn't he, Mel? If he does have a vote of confidence, um, I I hate to say yes, but I think you may be onto something here, Bill. I, I my sense is that uh, he's got 25 Labour members who are supporting his Brexit deal. That doesn't mean that they'll support the government. The blame game allows Boris to blame Jeremy Corbyn for bringing down his government. So if he does, if if Labour votes against his uh, agenda and the Queen's speech, then he, Boris, will blame Jeremy Corbyn, and Corbyn will, of course, blame the Prime Minister. Um, the, there's a lot of finger-pointing going on right now. Your point is well taken, though, that uh, if you do the addition and you've got um, uh, the DUP supporting uh, the government and you've got the government not being supported by the several Conservative members, and you've got the government being supported by a handful or a couple of handfuls of uh, Labour members, it's very unclear whether uh, the government will survive through another two weeks. Mel, let's go down that scenario for just a second. What if there is a vote? What if there is a non-confidence vote? What if the government does fall? Uh, October 31st is coming up pretty quickly at this stage. Uh, how does the EU respond to that? Because that's going to throw, the obviously, the UK into an election mode right now. And, and does Brexit go ahead on October 31st anyway, or do they, they try to negotiate an extension? Where, where, where do they go there? Well, irrespective of whether Parliament is sitting or not, uh, there's an obligation under the Ben Act, or the European Withdrawal II Act, uh, that Hillary Ben had, um, had moved and, and was passed. Uh, that the government on the 19th of October, if there has not been an agreed deal, will uh, ask for an extension. And so Boris Johnson is under a statutory obligation to ask for an extension. Now, a lot of the rumors suggest that Viktor Orban of Hungary will actually vote against it, and you need unanimity among the 27 European Union members. Uh, so, Boris could offer a te- could comply with the statute with a very tepid. Um, I don't really mean it, but can you give me an extension? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Mm-hmm. He doesn't get it, uh, and then October thirty first happens, and uh, and he's out, which is what he wants. Uh, the alternative is that they do actually give him an extension to January thirty first, and he lives to fight another day, or. The results of an election result in Jeremy Corbyn living to fight another day. We shall see. What's the appetite for Jeremy Corbyn uh, as as prime minister? Um, I would say uh, it's the same as the appetite for uh, dung. Uh, (laughs) Not much. Um, Jeremy Corbyn has no support in the public at large. He has some tepid support uh, in a split 
Labour Party. Uh, what's fascinating about watching British politics now are the splits within the parties are at least as, as severe as the split between the parties. It's it's fascinating to watch that dynamic, and and I'm getting the sense as as I look in, more into this, that the Labour Party right now obviously are going to be pivotal in the, in what's going to be happening here. Uh, they, they seem to have an identity crisis here, Mel. They don't quite seem to know who they are. That's quite right, and um, you know if you go back to the the uh, rhetoric around Tony Blair's government, you had. Uh, essentially new labor. And the idea was that labor was going to be modernized and uh, Blair and Brown brought it into the 21st century and made it uh, a more serious party uh, that recognized the role of markets and economy as important. With Jeremy Corbyn's usurpation of the leadership of the Labour Party, You've had a return to the 50s, and Corbyn is a, um, was a communist at the time, and uh, he's a, a, a very far-left leader, and he's uh, trying to make the party in his own image. And as a result, the party is very divided on this. And you've got Tony Blair speaking out against Jeremy Corbyn as the leader and against the Labour Party, which is bizarre. Well, which is typical of what's gone on with the Labour Party. I mean, this, as you mentioned, was a party that was a blue-collar, roll-em-up-sleeve, let's, uh, you know, you know, brothers and sisters sort of a thing, uh, which was traditional, I guess, for those sorts of parties. And there's Tony Blair who says, hey, there's nothing wrong with a guy from a private school in Edinburgh leading the Labour Party. I mean, come on, <laughs> this is this is the 20th century, heading into the 21st century. And, and they bought it, obviously, for a couple of elections. Uh, does does that element that, that Blair brought to that party still have any sway at all? I think it does. There's a, a residual uh, sense of modernity uh, in parts of the Labour Party, but nobody has, uh, has emerged as a leader of that sentiment uh, who's been able to take on Jeremy Corbyn. And so the people, and remember that the whole Brexit idea is a bit of a throwback to the good old days of the pink pits on the map and the empire uh, having sway. And so if, if, if uh, the Conservative Party really wants to go back to those so-called good old days, uh, there's a sentiment in the Labour Party that wants to go back to their, their idea of the good old days. That's anti-colonial and all of that, but still um, a, a sense of the uh, far-left um, e- egalitarian mo- uh, sentiment that really um, undermines a modern economy. And Britain is a modern economy now. It's, it's rather bizarre. I mean, I, I always get the sense, Mel, that, that Jeremy Corbyn was just a radical looking for a place to plant his flag. And he go, okay, it'll be the Labour Party. Uh, mind you, you could probably, to a lesser extent, make the same argument about Boris Johnson, although he does have some roots in the Conservative Party. But, but, but the, as you mentioned, traditionalism on both sides of this right now has gone by the wayside, hasn't it? Well, it has and it hasn't. I mean, I think that uh, you're right that uh, these are opportunistic political leaders in some respects. Uh, but the, the sentiment for Brexit, which exists in both parties, is really um, a, a, a wish for the, the bad old days or good old days, depending on how you see it. And, um, and there is this notion that Middle England is going to dominate again. And you remember that Scotland uh, voted remain. Uh, remain. Yeah. Uh, Wales was very split. Northern Ireland voted remain. And it was largely Middle England. And London voted remain. But Middle England 
really voted for uh, uh, exit Brexit, and um, and that that seems to be a dominant sentiment still. Well, uh, Minister Sturgeon in Scotland has been eerily quiet over the last couple of weeks about this, but I got to figure if October thirty first comes and goes, she may be speaking up again. She um, she has not changed her mind about Scottish independence, and uh, neither has Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland. Uh, and they're sitting there, I'm sure, just uh, you know, wringing their hands, hoping that uh, this goes ahead and that there's an, uh, a uh, border in the uh, Irish Sea that unites uh, the island of Ireland. And the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland um, are potentially going to be still in the European Union, and um, uh, Sinn Féin may get its wish. Well, uh, let's see who blinks first. Uh, Mel, it's always a pleasure having you on the program to get your insight into this. Thanks so much for the time today. Talk again, Bill. Bye. You, you betcha. That's uh, Mel Cap, of course, professor from the Monk School at University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.